gang, this week's episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. Hey, LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates that you want to talk to faster. Did you know that every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free now at linkedin.com slash good seats. That's linkedin.com slash good seats to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now here's our show. Hi, everyone. I'm Bob Costas. As we all know, St. Louis is the best baseball town in America, and you are right now in the heart of Cardinal Nation. But as at least some of you know, St. Louis's major league history is not confined to the Cardinals. Because for decades and decades, until the midpoint of the 20th century, there was another team in St. Louis. Mostly a losing team, but a team that at one time had a first baseman who hit 400, at one time was the major league home of one of the greatest and most legendary Negro League stars, at one time had a pitcher who would go on to pitch a World Series perfect game, at one time they were owned by this guy, Bill Veck, who among other things sent a midget up to pinch hit. They were the St. Louis Browns the forerunners of the current Baltimore Orioles. And they're part of St. Louis's baseball story, too. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hello there. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name's Tim Hanlon. It is Good Seats Still Available. You know what this is all about. It's a podcast. We've been doing it for almost five years now. It's devoted to what used to be professional sports. Thanks for coming on by. Uh, if you're a return visitor, uh, we uh, can't uh, believe you've come back, but we we <laughs> are very thankful you've done so. Uh, if you're brand new to the proceedings, well, where you been? We're uh, happy to have you too. Uh, and uh, what an episode we have for you this week, because it's about a team uh, that uh, has been long on the list uh, for us to cover. Uh, I wouldn't say it's sort of been hiding in plain sight, but it's uh, as we've dug into it, and uh, it's uh, sort of hit our radar with uh, increasing force, uh, we recognize that this is perhaps uh, one of the more well-supported defunct and no longer with us teams uh, in the realm of pro sports. And uh, we're just uh, kind of embarrassed, frankly. We've uh, taken this long to get to it. It's the St. Louis Browns. Yes, the baseball team that uh, co-inhabited uh, Sportsman's Park for, for many years uh, in St. Louis. You people in St. Louis obviously know the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, but I think for people from the outside of the realm of St. Louis, and frankly, even a couple of generations uh, since, don't even recognize that that was a two-major uh, league baseball town for many, many years. And the Browns were, you know, I think the original lovable losers. Uh, the Cubs certainly have uh, taken on that moniker, uh, maybe have shaken it off a little bit with a fairly recent World Series win and some some decent uh, runs at uh, at success. Uh, but the St. Louis Browns, uh, nobody uh, sort of rings the bell for them as uh, one of the best teams ever in baseball history. Uh, far from it. Uh, the, as a matter of fact, uh, they were quite lamentable, uh, at least on the field, their on-field performance. So they had a couple of competitive seasons here or there. Uh, the only real uh, uh, sort of glory, I guess, was the 1944 World Series uh, that they uh, lost ultimately to the crosstown St. Louis Cardinals. Yes, the 1944 World Series was an all St. Louis baseball affair. Uh, but that was pretty much it in terms of uh, on-field uh, glory, shall we say. But it is a lovable team for sure. And our conversation this week is with uh, Ed Wheatley, who, uh, among many things, I guess you could call him sort of the chief curator of this story of this baseball team known as the St. Louis Browns. Of course, 
Uh, if you're a Baltimore Orioles fan, although it's <laughs> you're forgiven for not sort of uh, raising your hand in full force uh, the last couple of years, given just how woeful uh, that team has been, you you may know, of course, that the St. Louis Browns were the originator uh, or the original team uh, that moved uh, to become the Baltimore Orioles in the 19 in the early 1950s. Uh, we get into that part of the conversation as well as a bunch of other stuff. Bob Costas. Uh, kind of tease us up here. You get a little bit of a sense of uh, all the excitement and drama and just quirky history uh, of this team. And Ed Wheatley um, uh, will uh, go very deep uh, into a lots of different sort of nooks and crannies. So we can't get into the entire uh, multi-decade history of the Browns in just uh, uh, one podcast setting. But but it's safe to say, people like George Sisler, a w- wonderful player in baseball history, Pete Gray, a very interesting character. Uh, in his own way, Eddie Goodell, uh, for you, of course, you uh, trivia buffs know uh, his pint size story as part of the St. Louis Browns. And of course, nobody could forget the years that Bill Veck owned the St. Louis Browns baseball team. Uh, lots of uh, interesting twists and turns. And you're going to hear a lot of the history uh, sort of can be sort of, uh, I guess, encapsulated in the term, what if? So many different sort of pivot points where the Browns franchise, as you'll hear in our conversation, uh, could have gone in very uh, interesting and perhaps more memorable and maybe, frankly, still uh, domiciled in St. Louis uh, manners and, and ways. Uh, but uh, it was kind of not meant to be, and that's ar- arguably part of the charm uh, as the uh, remembrances of the St. Louis Browns uh, continue. Uh, I got a lot of promotional stuff you'll want to hear at the end here, but uh, there are a couple of books uh, that Ed's been part of and or authored. Uh, one's called Baseball in St. Louis from Little Leagues to Major Leagues. Uh, We'll tell you how to get a copy of that at the end of the show. Uh, St. Louis Browns, the story of a beloved team uh, with his co-writers, Bill Borst and Bill Rogers. Um, That's a wonderful book, too. Uh, A couple of films, actually, uh, that you can find on 9pbs.org, N-I-N-E-P-B-S.org. That's K-E-T-C-T-V in St. Louis. Two wonderful documentaries that you can stream for free. One is called The St. Louis uh, Browns, the team that baseball forgot. Uh, it's narrated by uh, uh, actor John Hamm. Uh, and there was a follow-up, uh, also Emmy-nominated, by the way, both of these films, called A Baseball Legacy, Fans Remember the St. Louis Browns. And again, at 9NINEPBS.org, uh, you could stream these films. Uh, but of course, the seminal place you need to go and bookmark, and it's, it's sort of your locus for all things St. Louis Browns, uh, is the St. Louis Browns uh, Historical uh, Society uh, Fan Club. I, it's a whole bunch of things. The stlbrowns.com the stlbrowns.com and that's uh sort of the uh, the passion uh, project of Ed Wheatley our guest this week as we talk about uh, and again embarrassingly late the St. Louis Baseball Browns we uh, get into the conversation in just a few moments time a couple of quick sponsor notes here uh two great ways to celebrate uh our final uh recognition of the great great St. Louis Browns franchise. Uh, how about RoyalRetros.com, the king of throwbacks, RoyalRetros.com. Uh, our pal Dustin Alameda in, in uh, uh, I was going to say Phoenix. That would be ridiculous. He's in Portland, Oregon. Completely different uh, climates for sure. Uh, check him out. Uh, 503 Sports is the, the sub brand. RoyalRetros.com is the site. Uh, the Browns jersey is there for you in, in uh, well-crafted uh, an original uh, 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 styled uh, 503 branded sports uh, fashion. If you'd like to get 
uh, a lovely uh, version of that. They also have a St. Louis Browns beanie, which is pretty cool. A St. Louis Browns long sleeve T-shirt. Uh, there's even a, a, a an old St. Louis Browns crest uh, T-shirt as well. Uh, but just some great uh, stuff there about the St. Louis Browns. Uh, and you can get them uh, with your, uh, certainly the jersey, uh, with your name emblazoned on the back or somebody else's name. And there are a couple different versions of the Browns jerseys. There's one with sort of the, the word Browns across it. There's one uh, another one with sort of a uh, uh, sort of scripted Browns uh, sort of uh, version. There's uh, another one with the scripted St. Louis version. A couple of different versions. Check them all out at royalretros.com. And, of course, use that promo code SEATS for 10% off all of your purchases, including uh, these uh, wonderful St. Louis Browns uh, jerseys for you to choose from. And last uh, but not least, uh, why not, of course, check out our pals at Ebbets Field Flannels. That's Ebbets, E-B-B-E-T-S dot com, Ebbets dot com. And you will find uh, just an absolute exquisite um, uh, offering it's the uh, it's their uh, part of their uh, Major League Baseball authentic jacket series. Um, it's this I, I cannot describe it to you uh, adequate enough, but the St. Louis Browns 1952 version of their authentic jacket. Um, it's uh, as highly uh, quality. The quality is stupendous. It's a brown wool. Uh, body and sleeves. Uh, it's the exact reproduction of the team jacket worn by the Browns in 1952. Uh, it's American-made brown wool body and sleeves. Um, uh, it's all wool knit. Uh, there's the embroidered patch uh, with the uh, cute little uh, uh, Browns, uh, little, uh, uh, I don't know, what would you call them? Sort of like pixie kind of guy looking uh, logo. Um, uh, zipper front, uh, black quilted lining inside. It's just, it's gorgeous. Um, and Brownie, that's his name. That's the logo in there, uh, is on there. And uh, it was just, uh, it's what they were wearing uh, two years before they bolted for Baltimore. The uh, St. Louis Browns 1952 authentic jacket, just one of uh, a, a, a whole series of gorgeous authentic jackets and a ton more, of course. Uh, in sports uh, 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 clothing and authentically done uh, at Ebbets Field Flannels. Again, that's ebbets.com, E-B-B-E-T-S.com. And of course, we want to save you some money at uh, Ebbets Field Flannels. And the promo code there for you is GOODSEATS10, the number 10, GOODSEATS10 at ebbets.com. Thank you both uh, to Jerry at Ebbets Field Flannels and Dustin at uh, RoyalRetros.com. We thank you uh, both for your uh, longtime patronage uh, or at least sponsorship of the show. And uh, we thank you, uh, our great listeners, for sticking around for our fun conversation. Here it comes. Coming up here with Ed Wheatley. Let's talk St. Louis Browns baseball, shall we? Please, as always, enjoy. One of the teams that has eluded me, and I, I you know, I'm, it's, I'm, I don't know why I'm just finally getting around to it, but has just a, a fascinating history, as you well know, is these St. Louis Browns. And I, I, I guess I'll just start with how do you uh, how did you sort of come into the the St. Louis Browns story? Because Lord knows they haven't been around for a long time. Um, yeah. So what, what's your what's your entree to it? Uh, fan, family, St. Louis, something else? What? Well, I think I think it's about three or four tentacles of that tangent. You know, the first is, yeah, I'm a big baseball fan. I grew up in baseball. My dad played professional baseball, and when he um, 
no longer play professional baseball. St. Louis had just one of the most tremendous semi-pro leagues in St. Louis in the country. And uh, in the um, late 50s and early mid 60s and so, and it was comprised of so many men who played pro ball. Uh, you know, any team of 16, 18 guys probably had 10, maybe 12 guys who played professional baseball. And growing up and, you know, being a bat boy and, and things like that, uh, a lot of the St. Louis Browns stayed in St. Louis. So I got to know these guys and and uh, was, you know, at a very young age cognizant that there was this other team beyond the St. Louis Cardinals, which, I you know, I'm a big fan uh, of the Cardinals, you know, season ticket holder playing the uh, Cardinal fantasy camps. And I still play baseball myself. You know, I play about a hundred plus games of senior league baseball across the country. Um, so have all this motivation. And what was going on was, believe it or not, there is no Brooklyn Dodgers fan club. There is no Philadelphia athletics fan club. There is a fan club of sorts led by one or two guys that put out like a, uh, a letter type thing once or twice a year for the Boston Braves. But 1984, the St. Louis Browns fan club was created. Uh, kind of a 40th me uh, memory of the 1944 World Series. And, you know, uh, Bill Boris had seen some things up in Cooperstown when he went to Pee Wee Reese's, his, his favorite uh, ball player of all times, induction into the Hall of Fame. And he saw the Brooklyn Dodgers fan club. And he thought, why doesn't St. Louis have one? Because Rick uh, Farrell was being inducted that same day and there was nobody there, you know, rah, 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 and him and Arn. So that kind of led to this evolution. And then what happened was, you know, we'd have activities, annual reunion dinners or luncheons were held every year from 1984 uh, on. And, you know, it was this thing where players would come, people would come. And St. Louis is just a phenomenal baseball town. I mean, that's, you know, other areas of books. I've well, written it's about, also but... like a big small town in some respects, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm relatively new transplant to Chicago, the Midwestern thing. But but St. Louis and a lot of those other Midwestern cities, right, it's it's big enough, yet it's also small enough, right? So this familial thing that you're describing shouldn't be a surprise to people in the area. And, it, you know, it, it just goes back to the roots of St. Louis in baseball. And that's, you know... Uh, a different book I wrote, you know, baseball in St. Louis, little leagues to major leagues, which was, um, you know, has, has done outstanding across picked as one of the top 25 books of 2020. One of the picked, uh, both of these two books were selected by a poll last summer of hundred best base books of all time. But, you know, it's just partly the way, you know, I write them, but it was St. Louis has such baseball roots. I mean, you know, there were times in the late forties, more men were in major league baseball from one high school, in St. Louis and any other high school in the country. You know, our American Legion teams were tremendous. Um, you know, in the Cardinals, the Browns, the Negro League teams, the Stars and the Giants were just, you know, there's just this culture and, you know, the institution of winning by, from the Cardinals, you know, next to the Yankees, they are they are the most. This radio presence of Jack Buck, Harry Carey, all these years, Joe Gargiola was in the, in the, uh, the booth as well. It's just you have this embedded fan loyalty. So what you do is you grow up. Um, baseball's the religion. You know, opening day is, you know, that, that special holiday. Uh, and you, so you have this present and people love it. So, you know, we were having these people, you know, these luncheons and dinners and the men who were running it, 
you know, all of a sudden they were getting up to the age, you know, late 80s or early 80s, retirement, their health, many passing on. And I was retiring in, in, in 2016, you know, after a 36-year career somewhere else. And I said, I would uh, kind of like to get involved at this leadership level and help run this. And it was starting to, as these other leaders were getting old, it just was losing a little steam and, and what have you. And, you know, and in my mind, this is a history that shouldn't be forgotten. This is something that uh, is special. You know, this is baseball. And the thing that's different about the St. Louis Browns, as I mentioned, the Brooklyn Dodgers, the, the Boston Braves, the Philadelphia Athletics, they don't have fan clubs. Well, what do they have? They have a franchise that waves their flag. You know, you go out to Dodger Stadium and you see across the walls the history of Brooklyn, you know, all the great players of those Brooklyn teams, their 1955 pennant, all that stuff. And their rivalries with the Yankees, the Giants. It's there in Dodger Stadium. You go to, you know, uh, Oakland and you'll see Connie Max pennants that he won back, you know, all those years, decades earlier in the 20s, 30s uh, with the Philadelphia Athletics. You go down to a Atlanta and you see, you know, the bits and pieces of the Boston Braves, the Milwaukee Braves. You go to Minnesota. And, and in the Minnesota Twin Stadium, they have a big, huge room and section that's dedicated to the Washington Senators. But if you go to Baltimore, you don't see much or you don't see anything about the Browns. You know, and we've met with uh, the Oriole front office and executives. And they said, and this is the same quote they said when in 1954, when they left town, the St. Louis Browns died. They were buried in St. Louis and their legacy did not come east. And they chose to put their heritage into um, the Baltimore Oriole minor league team that was formed after the Baltimore Orioles in 1903 moved to New York and became the Yankees. And then from 1903 to 1954, they had this great, and it was a great uh, dynasty in the minor leagues. But they don't, you know, you go, you won't find a 1944 pennant. You don't find, you know, statues of George Sisler you know, all these men. And as a result, this history is forgotten. And I said I would take over. And one of the things I was going to do, there, you know, wasn't any real great definitive book on the St. Louis Browns um, in, in, throughout this history. So I said, I'm going to write a book. Uh, I'm going to use the archives we have. And I'm going to get some publicity going for the team. And But also, more importantly, share this memory with the baseball world. And what it led to, you know, not only was Sports Digest um, picked the, as the best book published on baseball in 2017, Sabre nominated us for the Larry Ritter Award, and PBS came and said, can we make a movie of this book which uh, with a local St. Louis PBS network, which we did, you know, and uh, received Emmy nomination. And it also was the highest record-setting attended, I mean, watched uh, PBS uh, film in St. Louis and also had the highest pledge drive giving as well. And as a result of that, I remember that while we were in the middle of the film and we were doing a pledge drive, the, the uh, CEO comes running in and says, oh, my God, we can't keep the phones off the hook. This is unbelievable. And so do you have anything else? And um, 
it was like, yeah, there's a whole section that I wanted to put in the film that we couldn't. It's like, let's do it again. So we've actually done two films. They've both been Emmy nominated. I've won Emmy Awards. Cooperstown has picked up both of the films for their annual film festivals in 2018 and 2019. So we've really kind of regenerated that there was a team called the St. Louis Browns. They're not the team baseball for got because we don't have a franchise that, you know, uh, recognizes us and promotes us. I mean, even today, you, you, if you went out to, you know, uh, MLB's Monday early morning, you know, they put a letter out or what the hottest things in baseball. We, there was a story that I did for MLB on uh, Charlie uh, O'Reilly. He was, a, he batted, in 1934, at the age of a week shy of 59 years old, the oldest guy to ever bat. And, you know, it's so many of these little oddities are there about the Browns. And as a result, in St. Louis, as I said, it's a baseball town, but we have over 700 active people with the Browns nationwide. And every year we have a luncheon, except for last year, 2020, we didn't have it. We had a dinner or luncheon, but we generally go to luncheons these days. Um, and we have over 400 people attend. It's amazing, the love of the St. Louis Browns. It's, it's interesting that you you mentioned, usually this is a question we kind of wait till the end, but I might as well get to it now. And you sort of hinted at it. But the question generally revolves around, in situations like these, right? Especially for teams that have, I like to call them sort of previously previously domiciled, right? Whether they took the name, the, 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 uh, uh, the nickname with them or not. Um, we do find on, on so many occasions, it's, it's basically a cul-de-sac of where the quote-unquote official history or memories or memorabilia or any of that kind of stuff uh, does and should uh, live, where, where it should be, right? And, you know, the, the historians and the statisticians will say, well, of course, it's with the Orioles. That's the team that moved on. And and you know, well, the, although they do want to distance themselves, perhaps from the uh, from the records, I guess, of mostly of the of the Browns. I yeah, I think frankly, you could ask anybody who's a, an Orioles fan, like you know, uh, where have they been the last say three out of the four seasons, right? Uh, forty eight games behind, forty nine games behind, and I think in twenty eighteen, sixty one games behind first place. But I digress. Um, so, is it Baltimore, and or should it be? Or should it be perhaps in St. Louis instead, especially given what you've just described, there was essentially, it sounds to me like an abandonment of the history of the there, team. There was. An, actually, you know, I wasn't a, there to watch it, because, um, but uh, there was a bonfire where the Oriole, as they were packing up, you know, because there's two parts to it. There was a bonfire. A lot of the records, uniforms, those things were actually destroyed. When was when was this? Nineteen fifty-four. The the last game was played by the Browns on in September nineteen fifty-three, and in nineteen fifty-four they moved to Baltimore. And actually, you know, there, there was just less than a dozen of the players who were with the Browns actually made it on that team in nineteen fifty-four with Baltimore. So there was this real cutting uh, of the ties. Um, you know, so we have been able to get, gather a lot of memorabilia from the previous owners, especially Donald Barnes. His family have been outstanding and giving us all his records and things. And we have built it up from uh, people donating and wanting to keep the live. I mean, in this and I'll tell you about some of the events that we do throughout the year, just besides this luncheon. I mean, we do multiple 
roundtables. We do this night at the Grizzlies. Now, the roundtables, what we'll do is we'll do one kind of like a hot stove one in uh, late January, early February, where we pick a, some, a topic. Maybe it's Jared Sisler, one of the greatest men to ever play the game by far. Um, you know, it was, it was ironic. You know, his grandchildren came and, you know, not only provided his own personal memorabilia, uh, but told the stories that he would pass down to them. You know, how like Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb there in 1939, when they all gathered in Cooperstown, they were talking who would be the first pick for a baseball team. Cobb, Ruth, both immediately said George Sisler, you know. Um, so we would have a roundtable and, you know, we get several hundred people come to these roundtables and it's like, I believe half the ta- uh, the session should be two parts. One, we talk about the guest, the people, the person we honor. And, you know, bring anything you have because the second part is like show and tell when you're in third grade. Bring your memorabilia about this period. You know, 1922, one of the great Browns teams, one of the best in all of baseball for, for many reasons. Um, and I'll send you something I just wrote about them. But – um, I mean, you know, you had, you had Sisler, you had the, the best outfield in baseball of all time. Nobody knows this. You know, Kenny Williams, uh, Baby Dow Jacobson, and, and John, um, Johnny Tobin. The only team where they all played the five years and the only players to ever hit over 300 for five straight years in an outfield together. And it would have been six, except the next year Johnny Tobin hit 299. Well, not only did this one guy bring in, he had in his collection – the game used bats of the starting eight players, the 1922 Browns. Another guy had a uniform from the 1922 Browns. Plus we had all George Sisler's personal uh, memorabilia from his grandchildren telling stories. So we energize people like that several times a year. We having those. And then besides our luncheon, the one thing I do, and I'm just, I'm getting ready this week to announce um, uh, this year's special, the gateway Grizzlies is a, is a minor, uh, minor league team that plays just across the river in Illinois, about five minutes away from Bush stadium. Uh, they're in the frontier league. And I started several years ago, um, on the accolades of our book, our film and, and everything, because when I, we filmed over there, uh, for part of the scenery in the film, converting that to look like old Bush stadium with, and you know, the locker rooms, the, owner's office out on the field looking like, you know, it was back in the 1920s and 30s. We started doing Browns night at the Gateway Grizzlies. And what I'll do is I'll pick a player and, you know, they give me all these liberties. And I say, okay, let's say George Sisler. Well, that night the Browns will be, the Gateway Grizzlies will wear 1922 Browns uniforms. And I always put the visitors in Senators uniforms just you know, see two defunct American League teams. And then they give away a George Sisler bobblehead. And then there's a local brewery that crafts these uh, cans of beers with a 1922 Vienna Ale in it. And it has George Sisler's photographs and all his stats in the can. So both the bobblehead and the beer can become collective. And we sell out that minor league stadium. I mean, three hours before the game, people are already wrapped around it because they want to get in and get their bobbleheads. But, uh, so there is this energy, there's this emotion, whether it's the lunch and the, the round tables, the uh, uh, nights at the Grizzlies. So, you know. Right, well, how, so, so tell me then how, I guess the, the question from the outsider perspective is, you know, this is a team that 
by all accounts, was probably one of the worst sort of teams in terms of uh, uh, record, right, over the years. I mean, one well, one World Series appearance and 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 clearly with another team so powerfully entrenched in the St. Louis psyche as the Cardinals, how does this team somehow magically stay alive beyond your efforts? I mean, where is the nostalgia coming from? Because frankly, that's pretty rare as the years roll on, right? Especially for a team that hasn't been real since the 1950s. Right. You know, it's been 68 years and people say, you know, I get calls all the time from writers, newscasts, whatever. So how is it you are getting 400 people to come to um, a luncheon? Who cares? Well, these people do. Some of them are the guys who, you know, they're in their 80s or 90s now that watched them. But so many people are young. And it was like, I want to know about this team. My father, my grandfather loved this team. He would always wear a Browns hat or a Browns sweatshirt. Why is it, you know? You know, somebody last two weeks ago, I, I was watching Going My Way, you know, the Bing Crosby movie. And why was he having a Browns thing on all over you know, 1944. And, it, and really it comes down to they were a love team. You know, there was the Cardinals, which were always winning, you know, branch. I mean, it, the thing of it is, is the Browns have this hard luck story. They have this story about things could have gone so many points along their tenure, a crossroad. If they would have taken the other crossroad, they probably would have been the team here in St. Louis and the Cardinals should have been gone. I mean, it starts with Branch Rickey was a Brown and he ran him. He was a manager. He even played for him and he wanted to build the farm system. And Philip DeCatsby Ball, the owner, wouldn't allow him to do it. And they had these tremendous ego clashes. And he finally. He also shared, they also shared the same stadium too. Well, I, help, right? yeah. not, not from the start. They actually, uh, the Browns owned Sportsman's Park from the get-go, and the Cardinals played at Robeson Field, which is about five blocks from where Sportsman's Park was. It was the last wooden grandstand in the major leagues. And, you know, it kept having, you know, in those days, men smoked cigars, right? It would catch fire, like a, a lot of them across the country, but the rest of them were um, starting to build concrete and steel. And the Cardinals, from the time they came into the uh, ma uh, major leagues in the National League in 1892, up until, you know, really 1920, they were bottom feeders. They were terrible. They were much worse than the Browns. Uh, there, there isn't much comparison between um, the two. St. Louis was a Browns town until Branch Rickey leaves the uh, – Browns and goes to work for Sam Braden, who took who had just bought the Cardinals, and says, "I want to win. Do whatever you can to make me a winner." So now you got Branch Rickey, that you know, just chomping his bits. Great baseball genius, but one of the <laughs> craziest, most egotistical, probably honorary men you'll meet from what everyone tells uh, the stories. So he sets about. Um, the idea of creating the farm system. And at the same time, paralleling that is the situation where Robeson Field burns down. Now the Cardinals are in a world of hurt. A, they don't have a stadium. Where are they going to play? And they don't have a lot of money because they haven't been winning. So they have to build it. 
it's going to cost a lot of money. They don't know how to do that. Or should they just move to a new town into a new city and a new stadium? Well, Branch Rickey, knowing what he used to clash with uh, Philip Ball, the Browns owner, that he was a cheapskate, comes up with a third idea, and he goes down the five blocks and tells him, look, you know, if you're a really good businessman, why do you leave your stadium unused half the year? Because you're, you're on the road for half the 54 games, 154 games, and the other half, it's you're using it. But when you're not here, how about the Cardinals come in and play? And we can use your stadium and look at the money you're going to get. And he, he shows them this big amount of money. But Ball just doesn't, doesn't um, divide it by the 30-year lease and whatever, you know. And it's really not that much money a year. So all of a sudden, the Cardinals have not much, to, you know, they're not paying a lot to maintain a stadium and upkeep and, you know, all the things that it does. And all he does is take that money and invest into uh, the minor leagues and creates the minor leagues. Something that Ball said was too expensive, and now all of a sudden, uh, Ricky has all the money. And then on top of it, he took the land uh, where Robeson Field was, sold it to the St. Louis City School District, which um, was in dire need of a school in that area. He jacked up the price. They gave, they gave it to him. He had that money to the minors league system. And by the way, that school that I'm speaking about, they build there, that high school, is the one I spoke of earlier in the 1940s and 1950s had more men in the major leagues than any other high school in the United States. So what goes around comes around. So that was one of these big turning points. And then Philip DeCatsby uh, Ball, he died a few years later. And what happened was his family didn't want to invest any of his portfolio back into the ball stadium. And, and for multiple years, um, the the team was run by a bunch of estate lawyers and their whole idea was to protect the wealth of the estate and not invest in the team and you know they would sell off good players and that's where they started kind of doing this dive in their history of through the 30s you know they had and i just did an interview with uh, uh, one of the writers on uh, uh you know is it is it really tr- true that you know eighty thousand people you know <laughs> in a whole season. Well, you know, yeah, that is true. But it was also during the great depression too, you know, and people had to, did they have food, you know, uh, they have money for this or that. And base going to baseball games was a lesser priority when you could listen to it on home. So in the meantime, Ricky invests all that money. And what's he get? He gets a world series team in 26, 28, uh, 30, 31, 34, 42, 43, 44, 46. You know, if he would have invested with the Browns, the Browns could have had it. If the Cassidy Ball said, no, you can't come in my stadium, Cardinals would have been out of St. Louis. And the other thing was one of these forks in the turn is in 1922, the great teams led by George Sisler. You know, in 1922, they lost the pennant by one game to the New York Yankees. It was a, it was a fantastic battle throughout the year. The problem is the greatest hitter in baseball, George Sisler at that time, who was batting well over 420, he got hurt in early September, taking a wild throw from the shortstop. He jammed and, and tore his shoulder. And basically for three weeks, you didn't have George Sisler. And then slowly they kept losing games and lost by one game. What would have happened in 1922 if the Browns had won the pennant and been the first team 
because the Cardinals aren't going to win until 26. The first team to win a pennant in St. Louis. I mean, it could have etched their franchise. I think as you go through their history, more and more, you find um, this is all missing. You know, um, there's a situation that comes up. Even in 1944, hey, we win the pennant, right? But who do you have to go against? You don't even get the full limelight of your city um, because you're going to have to play the Cardinals, you know, to really see who's the best. And even in that series, Stan Musial always talked about, you know, we were the underdogs. Everybody was rooting for the Browns to win. Uh, so, I mean, and there's so many instant, right, one right after the other. If just a little bit had gone different, things could have happened. And, you know, even when Bill Veck bought the team, you know, he was going to run the Cardinals out of town. You know, I own the stadium. I'm kicking them out of the stadium. You know, the owner of the Cardinals is is, is going to jail for tax evasion. Uh, Fred Sy, that was. Um, and it looked like they were gone. It looked like they were going to Houston, except then Augie Bush uh, owner of Anheuser-Busch stepped in and said, I think I could sell a lot of beer if I owned a baseball team. So well, let's so. back up. Let's back up for a second. You mentioned the, the ball estate, which I guess was what? 33 to 36 <clears throat> essentially yes. owned the team. And then Donald Lee Barnes buys the team in 36 and is the owner during this period of time when the Browns achieved <laughs> their highest pinnacle of on-field success, meaning that one year and in 44, where they went to the world series, um, uh, give me a sense though, um, around that time, because it seems like Barnes also kind of came to the conclusion, um, and maybe even before their on-field success that, um, maybe St. Louis couldn't, uh, afford, shall we say, two franchises and obviously a lot of war, effort and distractions and, and economic challenges and stuff, I'm sure sort of weighing on him as well. But uh, do I have this right, that there was a, a possibility that the Browns, he was maybe thinking about trying to get the Browns to go to, to LA a full decade or yeah. so before uh, the national yeah. league actually did it in the fifties. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, about 16 years earlier, um, what he bought the team from, um, the Barnes, I mean, she was from um, the Ball Estate. And he put together a conglomerate, and he was trying to win in the late 30s and early 40s. But, you know, again, basically what happened was he inherited not only a depleted team of good players, but a, kind of a de depleted, uh, you know, franchise, the minor league system. Everything was a mess. So, you know, they didn't have good minor league players and teams. And then um, he was trying to put that all together when the war hit. So he looks at it and says, one way to get a better revenue stream is to go west, young man, as Harley Greeley, Horace Greeley would say. And there's a lot of parallels to that story to Stan Kroenke and, and the Rams, you know. I'm going out to California and have it all to myself. And he worked the uh, train and airline schedules and got this through to all the other seven American League presidents. And by the way, the man who did all the grunt work and, you know, was the real executive and general manager of uh, the Browns through all this was Bill DeWitt Sr., 
who is the father of Bill DeWitt Jr., who owns the Cardinals. And there are some key stories that take place with Bill DeWitt we can talk about later, you know, when we get to Eddie Goodell and Pete Gray and Willard Brown and Hank Thompson. But at this period, they've got it all done. And they're going to go to Los Angeles um, and they are going to have a big announcement dinner. The press, everybody's coming. We're going to announce this and make this happen. And the dinner is scheduled for December 8th, 1941. This, once again, is one of those little paths in the road that just doesn't take the right path. Because the day before is Pearl Harbor. Everything shuts down. Baseball won't go west, you know, until 1957, you know, ends out back in New York. But uh, um, it... You know, it was, how do I get some money and revenue back in this team and get this team back in shape? And, you know, California was starting to grow and transportation was the key that it could happen. And, you know, if Pearl Harbor had not changed the world, you know, there could have been, there definitely would have been uh, a Browns team in California. They would have been, they would have it all to themselves. They would have had all the riches and the financial opportunity to grow. Instead, the war comes, they work, they struggle. And they had a, some decent teams starting to build in 42 and 43. Yeah, ironically, it seems like they uh, management seemed to take advantage of the fact that uh, most of the bigger teams with, with deeper pockets had um, a lot of their best players poached for, for war duty, whereas the Browns, I guess, either luckily or cunningly did not probably cunningly and uh strategically is a better term and the credit really goes to bill dewitt senior that he put together what many call the best 4f team ever in baseball and you know the browns described 4f for our younger listeners 4f gave you uh you know you you, uh, let you out of military service it could be you had uh, a health infirmity, you know, of some reason that you could not, you know, be a soldier or a sailor, or there was some uh, family issue. And he put together and strategically placed these this whole team across the country at times. Um, and so as he found men who had played several years early and were out of baseball, and he brought them back uh, because they were over the age to, to enlist or, or be drafted. You know, they may have had a, a minor issue. There were also men um, where he could get exceptions because a lot of people had to work in the war industry, working in the uh, torpedo plants or working in the, you know, the munition plants, doing these types of things where they were, you know, required to work. And to give you a couple of examples, you know, we he would, as I said, station them. And, uh, you know, there were, we had uh, uh, Denny Galehouse lived in Cleveland and he had to work this job, but on the weekends he was off and he would take immediately take a train Friday night to, to arrive on Saturday to pitch Saturday's game. And, you know, he was one of their aces in the American league. And then he would head back to Cleveland to where they're going to be the next weekend. You know, you had guys um, like Chet Labes who worked in, you know, like a, a, a torpedo factory and, you know, he would work part-time and come in through this. And, you know, um, there were some things 
that there was a, they would kind of play to keep people from getting drafted as well. I mean, the Cardinals were notorious for that. Branch Rickey, you know, he controlled Musial. You know, when you say, well, how did Musial stay on the team in 42, 43, and 44? And then uh, finally, towards the end, he, he did get to, to – uh, he was drafted and went into the Navy. But, I mean, if you look at the, the New York Yankees team of 1943, there's eight starting players were all uh, – gone to the military but but DeWitt worked very very hard strategically getting men uh into um the the Browns fold and working around their military commitment at 4F's status and he put together a heck of a team you know like I said they had improved but like you said everybody started losing some players they only lost one guy and he did it worked, and they came down and, and, and won the pennant. But then again, uh, they didn't get to have the full limelight of the city because they had to share it with the Cardinals. And the Cardinals, as we said, they had been an institution. You know, they had the the National League MVPs of 42, 43, and 44 to throw at the Browns, and they were just so deep from their, you know, farm system. Um, the card, and, and you go, you get into the World Series, you know. Browns yeah, win. Yeah, the irony, I think, is lost, and I, and I, you know, is, was stunned to recognize that the nineteen ninety, excuse me, the nineteen forty four World Series was an all St. Louis affair. It was the Browns and the Cardinals in the same park? The only time, with the exception, the asterisk exception of twenty twenty, when the pandemic, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of truncated and kept it in in Arlington, Texas. But the, I mean, that well, had to be no, fascinating. The Yankees and the Giants played in the same. Uh, polo grounds before the Yankees moved into the Yankee Stadium in 23. Ah, okay. Interesting. Okay. Very interesting. But still, the fact that, that St. Louis oh, yeah. was, yeah, I mean, was the, the king of of, uh, of baseball cities at the time. Um, desc- describe that. I mean, like, was everybody, I, I'm guessing there was a, well, the Browns outdrew the Cardinals that year generally. Um, yeah. What what was this, what was the city like that year? And Well, there's, there, things about that that is really you know you talk about irony i talked about the Bing crosby movie going my way which wins the academy award for the 1944 film series i mean film period and throughout that he plays the the catholic priest and he's always wearing brown's hat brown's jacket and by the way a guy uh last month called me and said hey my dad got that jacket Bing crosby's jacket I, he was in the rko prop thing so i don't you know whether he does have it or not he's supposed to give me some more information on it but uh um, you know, here he, they're you know when that was filmed, you know there was no World Series yet. And 1944, what was the second best and, and the most popular film of the year? And you know it, it was just on every television station uh, a, a month and a half ago. Meet Me in St. Louis, and with Judy Garland, that came out also. They were celebrating the 40th anniversary of the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904 and 1944, and the world was singing because of this movie. Meet me in St. Louis, Louis, you know, and gosh darn, what happens in October 1944? It's meet me in St. Louis, Louis for the World Series as the two teams play one another. Um, and, you know, the town really, really, you got to remember the, 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 the Cardinals had been there in the World Series in 42 and 43. And as Stan Musial said, we were the underdog. Everybody wanted the Browns to win. They win the first game, and they should have won the second game. They were leading, and um, Nels Potter th- threw a ball into the right field corner on a bunt, 
allowing the Cardinals to get back in the game and eventually win in, in extra innings. And they win the third. So in, in reality, here's one of these fates of the Browns. It could have been. You know, the whole the whole story of the Browns history is, is it could have been, you know. Uh, it could have been the up three games to nothing. And about, at that time, no one had ever come back by three games, three nothing to win a World Series. And uh, it just it just didn't happen. What's this? LinkedIn Jobs. Hey, these days it can be hard to find and hire the right candidates for your small business. And that's why LinkedIn Jobs made it easier to find the people that you want to talk to faster and for free. You can create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Holy mackerel. I added that part. Focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience and use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus the leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know that every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash good seats. That's linkedin.com slash good seats to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to our conversation. After the war, though, it seemed like that uh, it really sort of exacerbated the Browns' uh, futility, right? I mean, having sort of climbed that mountain, so to speak, coming all so close, um, it almost felt like that the war, you know, being over and all the some of the top players finally coming coming back uh, to actually resume uh, to the extent that they could their careers. Um, it really feels like that was sort of a period that maybe almost accelerated. Uh, the disparity, perhaps, of the Browns' ability to compete on the field well, at that level. There's a couple things there. <clears throat> Going into 1945, the Browns were picked to win the American League again. And they felt they had a, the same strong core. And, you know, the war was still going on, um, you know, as, as the clock ticked to 1945. Like, you got to remember, halfway through the 1944 season, the Americans hadn't even landed on, on Normandy Beach for D-Day, you know. And when the World Series happened, they were still not too many miles from, you know, the English Channel working their way up up through France. So, I mean, you know, yeah, the war was still thought that it would be a while um, as spring tr- training came about. Um, and then things started to, to unfold fast on the war front. But it was still thought that, you know, the Browns had the nucleus for 1945. But here's one of those other situations. The team was confident. They felt good. Um, they were getting some guys back as, you know, they would their service time would be up and they would come home. And the Browns brought up a gentleman by the name of Pete Gray. Pete Gray had been the MVP of the Sally League. He had led in multiple offensive categories down in the Sally League best minor league player. 
Pete Gray is the one-armed man who played Major League Baseball. Again, one of these things. What's the only team that had a one-armed man? The Browns, Pete Gray. And Pete Gray, you know, he had a little chip on his shoulder throughout life because, you know, some people made fun. He didn't deserve it. Well, he was the MVP, right? And he had super speed. And the man, if you watch him and the film of him catching and hitting and throwing, he could perform. Um, and the other thing about it that I think is more probably the most important part of the Pete Gray story. And if you've seen my films and I can you know, get your copies, whatever you need, but uh, um, I had brought into people, a gentleman as one example who as um, a young child in the early forties, he had an issue with his leg and he was kind of a cripple and his dad took him regularly to sportsman's park. You look at that man there. He's playing major league baseball and he doesn't have an arm. Think about what you can do and you know, with what your is. And it's not only this young man in this film that tells the story, looking back at his you know childhood 80 years earlier, it's every soldier coming back from the war who was wounded or had something. If Pete Gray can make it in the majors, I can maybe do something, you know? But the problem was, as Pete Gray came in to the clubhouse, all of a sudden, the players weren't accepting him. Hey, we won last year. We don't need help. And it, it caused some consternation, criticism, and uh, unruly behavior in the Browns clubhouse that kind of took this team that was projected to win and turned them into kind of um, – some problems, and they, st- they like Mike Krivich, They'd start trading guys who were key cogs. He was he was a guy who uh, only guy hit over three hundred that year for the Browns. But there were such hard feelings about bringing in Pete Gray. And then the second thing is, and I'm here to tell you, the difference between hitting minor league baseball and major league baseball is big, even though it's a matter of inches uh, in movement. Um, they figured out how to pitch to Pete Gray, you know, and, you know, changing some movement. And, you know, with one arm, he couldn't adjust real well. And, you know, he had a so-so year, but he was out of baseball. But it was that kind of thing that it caused a disruption on the team. And, you know, and as a result, Pete Gray has been cast somewhat as a joke. Sometimes, you know, he shouldn't have been doing that. But I look at it more as what an inspiration he was to American society and American soldiers coming back that look guys, many of you are wounded. Many of you are deformed, but look at the, what you try, you can become something. It was also at that time, Donald Barnes was thinking about what you just said. DiMaggio, Feller, that whole 1943 Yankee team is going to be back. Williams, they're all coming. And so he was having some friction with his partner, uh, Richard Muckerman, over this. Although Barnes was this uh, uh, senior owner, you know, Muckerman kind of was liking the gray thing and trying these things. And Barnes basically, you know, sold high, you know, the old saying. And he got out of it. And that's really what drove him to sell in 1945. Um, and it, it was that happening. Well, and, and Muckerman struggled to uh, 
make it uh, financially as well because they also, I'm guessing they they did, did some renovations to Sportsman Park and uh, there's a farm team that that required some investment for their stadium down in San Antonio and it seemed, yeah, it seemed like a lot of things were kind of all sort of plus their their performance on the field was not doing well. It, it seems like that was a again sort of a precipitous slide on the financial front well it's just the dominoes you know that and those were the areas where barnes and muckerman uh were basically at odds you know muckerman was one you know you might say winning the pennant went to his head some and you know they wanting to invest in the minor leagues they built this big stadium in san antonio incurred tremendous debt um and you know all that was was coming together and, and Barnes said, you know, I've had enough. So then all of a sudden you lose Barnes. Muckerman's somewhat over his head. He's taken out loans, um, you know, with Major League Baseball and things and others. And, you know, he then winds up selling um, two years later to Bill DeWitt Sr. and his brother Charlie. And they will own it and, you know, try to recoup uh, – and, you know, and they did some things um, and what they're there in itself is one of the other things where, you know, people just ignore or don't know um, because there's no one but us heralding this um, July 1947. In April, on April 15th of that year, Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier. And on July 5th, 1947, Larry Doby breaks the color barrier in the American League. And Bill DeWitt is saying, we need better players. And he goes to the Kansas City Monarchs and acquires actually three African-American players from the Monarchs. And he uh, brings up two of them, Willard Brown and Hank Thompson, to play. And he said, look, we have a large African-American community in St. Louis and we've got seats for him. And so he's trying to do two things, bring in new fans, but also get better players. I mean, Willard Brown's in the hall of fame. He was selected as one of the Negro leagues, uh, players in 2006 to be in the, uh, hall of fame induction. And then Hank Thompson had two marvelous world series appearances, in, in 51 and 54 with the uh, New York Giants. But, you know, he St. Louis is not recognized. I was up at the uh, Negro League uh, Baseball Museum in Kansas City when I was doing some research on one of the books. And I talked, was talking to Ray Downs. So I said, where is the picture of Willard Brown and Hank Thompson here to talk about the Browns? Not only were they the third and fourth men to cross the color line, but St. Louis was the first team to have two African-American players. I mean, the Cardinals would not have an African-American player until 1954. And it would be, I always use this expression, American history in eighth grade, you're told Boston is, you know, the cradle of liberty, the beacon city, right? The beacon of democracy. And it would be 1959 before Pumpsy Green would get to step field, uh, step on the field at Fenway Park. But here the, the most southern city in all Major League Baseball had two African-American players. And does anybody know that? No. All right. Tell me, I, we, I mean, we can go on forever. I mean, there's, there's so much to 
unlock here. But tell me as t- tell me about the Bill Veck era, right? Because in 1951, this is in many respects, obviously historically, it's it's true. This is sort of the last sort of great chance, I guess, to resurrect or rehabilitate or bring back this franchise to any level of, of competitiveness. And, you know, Bill Veck, right, at the time and, and in memoriam, right, uh, a a uh, flashy and, and often controversial figure. But if there's anybody who's going to give it his all, maybe not necessarily with the biggest checkbook, um, you know, you probably couldn't think of a better showman and inventor, if you will, than Bill Veck to kind of take on this this challenge. I mean, Bill Veck's the predecessor of uh, Charlie Finley and George Steinbrenner and Mark Schott. I mean, you know, he's all of them put together and he came along. You know, got to remember, uh, it was Bill Veck who took the 1948 Indians to the World Series. You know, put Larry Doby on the field, the second African-American. I mean, there's, you know, brought in Satchel Page also. Uh, he, he was, he's a winner. So how did he come to St. Louis? Well, he got a divorce. And to manage that divorce settlement, he had to s- sell his shares in the Cleveland Indians. So he's looking for something. And you got you got to remember, Bill Beck goes way back. His dad was the president of the Chicago Cubs back in the 30s. It's Bill Veck who planted the first ivy in, in Wrigley Field. So Bill is intent in getting back in baseball because of his roots. And as I spoke earlier, he saw the perfect star, St. Louis. DeWitt and his brother Charlie had some loans they had to pay off for when they bought the team. Um, they were looking for some help. Um, the Cardinal owner Fred Sy is going to jail for tax evasion tied to a scheme by he as the accountant Sam Breeden who was the prior owner of the Cardinals who, who had died of prostate cancer had tried to build a new stadium and had collected a lot of money but didn't do anything and the IRS came in and by, that's what put them, him in jail um, and you know the Cardinals by that time Ricky had left the Cardinals and gone to the Dodgers um, and they weren't running pretty smoothly. They were kind of like the Browns back when Philip the Catsby Ball died, period. And Vex saw his chance to come in, take over the town. He'll create a winner. And when he came, not only did he do things in the style a la P.T. Barnum, uh, he did things that brought people into the stadium. I mean, he had tremendous jumps in attendance in his first two years. And, you know, it really looked like there was a good chance the Cardinals would leave and be going to uh, Houston. Uh, you know, like he said, they're, they're, they're in a turmoil in the front office. Their, their owner's going to jail. I own the stadium. I kick them out. You know, I'm going to own the town. Um, and he, he – the people – Loves Bill Vec. And I want to tell you, I have interviewed over the years a lot of players and under who played under Vec. You know, Don Larson, Eddie Mickelson, Ned Garver, all these people. There's not one person will ever say anything negative about um, Bill Vec. They loved him. He was a player's owner. He would sit with them, 
drink beer, play cards in the clubhouse. And then during the games, he would walk around. You know, he had a he had a wooden leg, and he had an ashtray in his wooden leg too. Um, and he would sit with the fans. He would buy him soda, buy him beer, buy him popcorn. You know, he was out there. And when there was the, when when they weren't playing, whether it was the off season or they were on the road, he was at every Rotary Club, community club in St. Louis, espousing. You know, to be a Browns fan, any but buddy who was born in fifty, late fifty one, fifty two, fifty three, you got a letter sent to your house. You know, dear, he wrote this poem, dear little Miss So and So Parks. You know, and it's this poem about we, you know, I'm glad you're born in St. Louis and and all this. I want you to come to game, bring your parents to a game, and he would send so send tickets. And if you happen to be a boy, you also got a a, a contract to appear in eighteen years at at spring training. And I want to tell you how many people have always brought those out to show me, or even the stories of the guys who, in the in the, in the uh, nineteen early nineteen seventies, actually tried to go to to spring training uh, under the Orioles using that contract. But uh, Vec really thought he he could win, uh, but you know he was trying to get the money uh, and resources. And you know the other thing is the Yankees did not like Vec, and they were doing everything to hurt him, but. Well, nobody liked Vec. I mean, a lot of people didn't like him right, in the baseball. St. Louis, who club. And they loved him. I mean, you know, um, you, you, Vec always had this thing. As I said, he was the P.T. Barney of baseball. You know, come to one of the Browns games, you never know what's going to happen. The game's over. All of a sudden, the wagon gate's open, and here comes elephants, clowns. He puts on a circus. Another day, it might be the wagon gate's open after the game. And you hear the music of Sweet Georgia Brown, and out come the men carrying uh, a basketball court, and here's come the Harlem Globetrotters and whatever team they're playing. And there's a basketball game. Those are the things he did. So on August 19th, 1951, <coughs> they're going to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the American League, which was formed in 1901. Also, Greasy Dick Beer, their sponsor, had been um, it's when they started. And he promised everybody who came to that game cake and ice cream. So, you know, he's, he's, he's doing these gimmicks to bring people in the ballpark. And according to lore now, about 300,000 people were at that game. And, I mean, I know what the real attendance was. But, uh, you know, people get there and they're looking at their scorecard. And the first game, you know, they're playing the Detroit Tigers. You know, not, you know, it's just a regular ball game. In between the two games of the doubleheader, the men came out carrying this cake. Well, everybody thinks there's this gorgeous – bathing beauty going to pop out of the cake right because it's one of these bands like you know uh six men are carrying this this huge thing instead of this little dude three foot seven inches by the name of eddie goodell pops out and he's wearing a uniform of the browns and on the back is number one eighth well you know people had bought scorecards and we've got the scorecards there it says it said one eighth on it right well, nobody paid attention to that because that that was a, a gimmick by Beck because he was full of gimmicks, right? Well, there's there's his name's Goodell, you know. We can see that. And by the way, that uniform was Bill DeWitt Jr.'s, who owns the Cardinals uniform because he was the Bat Boy in those days. His dad borrowed his uniform so Eddie Goodell could wear it. And a funny story, side note is I've talked to Bill, and he was telling us at one of our luncheons that that uh, well that uniform went to the hall of fame eventually for the first three years it hung in their living room closet and it was used at halloween by him or his sister uh for a halloween costume so one of the most precious pieces of baseball memorabilia became a halloween costume but anyway 
you know, this little guy waves to the crowd and goes in the Browns dugout. Nobody's really thinking at it. And there's a parallel story that Frank hit was a superstar, you know, holds many of the college and minor league batting records. But he got pulled into service um, in uh, World War, end of World War um, Two, and he had to serve some extra years. So he was he was now he was a 1950 minor league player of the year, you know, picture on Sporting News and all that with all the major league stars. And Bill DeWitt had, uh, talked him into coming back. He wasn't going to come back and play baseball. He talks him to come in. He's from Washington, Missouri. He's about 40 miles out of St. Louis. The whole town, it's announced Frank Sauce is going to start game two. He's going to lead off in right field. The town of Washington comes by the busloads. Sportsman's Park, everybody's watching it. Game two starts. Frank Sauce is out in right field. Now, nope, only a few people know he can't throw. He's hurt his shoulder. And, you know, he's told Bob Young, the second baseman, get your butt out here if something's hit to me because I'm going to have to throw underhand to you. Well, they come in to bat in the bottom of the first inning, and the announcer says, now batting for Frank Sauce, number 1-8, Eddie Goodell. And here come out of the dugouts this little one, uh, three-foot, seven-inch little guy up to the plate. The the Tigers manager comes running out screaming, you know, uh, what's going on? Ed Hurley, the umpire, tells Zach Taylor to come over. What's going on? Taylor pulls out. Here's the contract. Eddie Goodell signs a major league contract. Ed Hurley says, it's real. Play ball. Bob Kane's a Tigers pitchers on um, the mound, and Bob Swift, the uh, Tiger catcher, they're trying to figure out how to throw to a guy who's got a seven-inch strike zone. You know, Kane wants to throw it underhand. Hurley tells him you got to throw it overhand. Swift gets down on like all fours to catch and tells him, "No, get in your position." You've seen the infamous photo of Eddie Goodell uh, taking four pitches, walking down to first base. Uh, Jimmy Delson comes out to pinch run, slaps him on the butt, and goes into immortality. He's asked, why didn't you just swing at one for the heck of it, you know? And he said, because, and, you know, Bill Veck was an old Marine. Because Mr. Veck told me if I took a swing, there's a sniper on the roof that'll shoot me dead. And that was that. So, you know, baseball's in an uproar. The commissioner and the other teams, especially the Yankees, they can't stand it. And it was so much that the commissioner... If you look at the 1951 complete record books, which, you know, we've got them all kinds of record books, you won't find Eddie Goodell in them because he said it didn't exist. Well, then, wait a minute, who did Bob Kane throw to? Who got on first base? Who did Jimmy Delsing pinch run for? You know, did George Sauce, I mean, Frank Sauce say something? So all these things, eventually it's put it back. But baseball is just really getting fed up with Vax antics. And, you know, he's warned, but he doesn't listen. Five days later, August 24th, 1951, he has grandstand manager night thinking, you know, what the heck? You know, let's get the fans involved. They're all coming out. They're, they're coming out to his games. And there's one section in Sportsman's Park where if you sat in that section, you got a placard that says yes on one side, no on the other side. Zach Taylor, the Browns manager's in street clothes on a rocking chair on the dugout of Sportsman's Park. And there's a PR guy with all these signs like, Play up, play back, swing away, bunt, you know, steal, pin, you know, all these little things. It's like what uh, the, this fan-controlled football is trying to do now, sort of uh, trying to just basically create the, the fans, basically calling the plays. Right, and what what was funny was, you know, I always use the, this, the story about 
Hank Arf was a big, burly, power-swinging first baseman like of that era, you know. But I also knew Hank very well, and Hank was very, very slow. He, he was never fast. Well, Hank walks. Up goes the sign. Should he steal? What do the fans do? Yes, and they're playing the Philadelphia Athletics under Connie Mack. And, you know, after an inning or two, the Athletics figured it out. Just watch the stands. Hank's on first. Should he steal? Yeah. Hank's, I got to do what I'm told, right? Hank takes off. He's thrown out by 25 feet. So Major League Baseball is saying you're making a mockery of the game, Vec. We don't want you uh, in the game. Um, the trouble is the Browns won the game. So you know maybe the Browns fans were better managers, as you just spoke of a moment ago, than, than the real people. But, you know, Vec was maneuvering because what happened was Aunt Augie Bush of Anheuser-Busch Breweries, you know, the world's largest beer maker has plans to buy the Cardinals because Augie Bush was going to follow the original Browns. I mean, Cardinal owner, uh, Chris Vonderai, who was a, he, when he, he started the, um, the team back in the 1870s, I can sell a lot of beer. Uh, if I had a baseball team, cause he had a tavern right next to sportsman's park. So Bush comes in wanting to buy the Cardinals with his, millions and millions and millions of dollars he, he wants to buy sportsman's park and change it the name to budweiser park which is a little anomaly because today how many stadiums are named after alcoholic beverages and major league baseball says no you can't do that um and he said fine i'll call it bush stadium after my name and they said that's fine and then six months later he introduced bush bavarian beer uh and said, screw you, Major League. But once Bush bought the Cardinals, Vec knew he couldn't stay because the money was going to be with the Cardinals in town. Because um, Bush had so much money, and he wanted to win. And he was looking to go to Milwaukee, but the Red Sox owned that geographic uh, part, and um, they took advantage of it and moved um, the the. Bur- the Braves to to Milwaukee. He was also looking at perhaps uh, Baltimore, and there were issues. And you know, basically, at the end of the day, the there were several ownership uh, owners in the American League that they just told that he had to leave. And after the '53 season, you know, they blocked any move on him. They wouldn't let him relocate a move. They told him he had to sell. So he was forced to sell the team. Uh, they took, basically took his franchise away. But the irony of it is a couple years later, they bring him back and he takes the White Sox to the 59 World Series. So you want to tell me this all makes sense? It was a, it was a matter of uh, individual politics. And uh, – it's also interesting, too, because you mentioned uh, these these pivot points and these sort of what ifs and closing doors kind of situations. Right? So not that the team was, you know, doing really well on on the field, but they were certainly, you know, he was making it entertaining. I mean, let's put it in perspective. I mean, I don't, I don't think it was a time they were under Vex ownership that they were, what, 30, better than 30 or some odd games behind first place uh, in those in those years. Right. Yeah, but, yeah, but, but I got to 
but I guess I would say there's six other teams that were kind of bad because you got to remember, I mean, the Yankees owned the fifties, right? <laughs> um, you know? Oh, sure. And, no, no, I, I, get that. but my, I guess my point though, is that it without, and, and it looked like the Cardinals were basically gone. They were going to leave. Right. I mean, had, if Bush doesn't come in and literally save the team, Right, you could make the argument that that at least the Browns would have had still a fighting chance, and and who knows what would have happened. I mean, especially if if the Cardinals were going to you know slump around and and maybe wind up going somewhere else or to another city, the Browns might have it at all to themselves, and it would have maybe reinvigorated the franchise, and and maybe more could have come from it. Well, I absolutely agree with that one hundred percent. Beck agreed with one hundred percent. He 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 envisioned the Cardinals would be gone within a year or two totally envisioned it because he knew the trouble that was going on in the front office of the Cardinals. He knew their, their team had, had just basically grown old. Um, they weren't the teams that was always there in the hunt in the forties and they were distracted. He knew they didn't have a stadium and, um, he had this plan all laid out that he would own the town. And then when he started getting the roadblocks is when he started looking at the Milwaukee or, you know, moving his team to, to a new city because he knew he could not, nor could very few people ever go up against Augie Bush. Um, you know, he carried so much weight, not only in, you know, banks, institutions in the town, you know, but in, he eventually evolved his, took his power and became, you know, one of the big powerhouses of uh, major league owners. And, you know, it would have been so much different if Bush had refrained. I, you know, to the man, people believe um, the Browns would have been here and the Cardinals would have been in Houston, you know, long before uh, the Colt 45s came. Um, it, seems so incon- uh, it seems so inconceivable today, doesn't it? It does today, but, you know, you just look back, you think, man, how, how easy would it have been for the Browns to be in Los Angeles in 1941? It was very conceivable. And, you know, now we look back and think, you know, the war prevented that. They, they could have owned the, the, uh, California. Uh, you know, they could have owned, you know, back in 1920, all they had to do was say, no, you can't come uh, to Sportsman's Park when Branch Rickey walked down there as the Cardinals t- stadium was left in ruins. I mean, there were just so many things that could have happened. And, you know, Throughout all that history, while these vexing forces are going on, I mean, there's great players. There's decent teams at times, and there's some lousy teams at times. Um, but, you know, there's 15 men associated with the, with the Browns that are in the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, and some of, you know, the greatest moments, you know, besides Eddie Goodell, besides grandstand manager, I mean, there's some really, you know, important um, things that are tied to the Browns. You know, like I said, this this thing in MLB today that I uh, helped him with, you know, about, you know, uh, Charlie Raleigh getting his hitting one week shy of 59 years old. He, he, he batted in the game. He, you know, last time he batted was in 1913. Um, you know, there's the two African-American players. There's. You know, George Sisler, Ned Garber, 1951, he wins a <clears throat> 20 games for a team that, that lost 100. Uh, you know, they rode 
rode him. You know, the, the era of Satchel Page, twice an all-star from the Browns. Uh, I mean, you know, he had guys. Another parallel, real quick, 66 men played for both the Cardinals and the Browns, which, you know, is emblematic or what, I don't know. But the, the, the thing of it is, you got Rodgers, Hornsby, Marty Marion, Jim Bottomley, and so on and so on. You know, some great players, but the problem was they had their great years with the Cardinals and their downhill years with um, uh, the Browns. I mean, Rodgers Hornsby managed the team twice, and he was terrible both times. I mean, but he wasn't a very good manager in any of the cities where he managed. But uh, um, it's, it's just a unique history. But every spring – People thought this might be the year. Sure, you were 64 and a half games out of first place, but last last year, but maybe this is the year because you never know in baseball. And uh, yeah, well, that sounds like a lot. A team that I know on the north side of Chicago that uh, you know for for yeah. you know, dozens of years were sort of the same. All right, well, here, here's my last question. And let's just you know, I mean, we, well, it, Browns were the lovable losers long before the the cut. Yeah, and that's the irony, right? Um, so I guess that sort of is the question, and and we'll we'll promote the the, the movie and the books and all that kind of stuff. And, and if people are just this is new to them, uh, they they will find that to be rich troves of 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 interestingness that we couldn't even get close to touching in this conversation. But you know, um, I I guess I'll sort of come back to what was sort of one of my first questions, and you kind of brought it up. Uh, why do the Orioles uh, ignore this history? And um, uh, and and how, besides the, these books and, and the movie, h- how does this history continue to live on? I mean, there's a there's only so much of people who were actually first person witnesses to this team left. Um, how and where and in what forms um, does this history and will this history continue? I certainly you've you and, and your colleagues have have. Uh, 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 you know, gone to great lengths to keep this historical society uh, up and running and going. Um, but but where where will this live? I mean, is the Baseball Hall of Fame uh, helpful in all of this? Is, is there a St. Louis sports history uh, place? Is is there is there something physical that could be done maybe in the Cardinals organization that could sort of embrace the overlap that the two teams shared a, a facility for so many years and that kind of stuff and and absorb some of that history because it was st louis what of and and, and how do you see uh, the next couple well, of you know memories a lot of the ways is exactly what all those things you're saying are happening you know uh cooperstown let's start there you know i have spoke spoken twice at cooperstown on the browns they have our films were selected as part of their uh, film series uh festival they have the the limited film festival weekend um you know and i spoke up there and it's funny when you're telling these people from new york and boston which you know is predominant up there in new england it's the hall of fame they're going we've never heard about this you know i get on the radio in baltimore i'm invited and people go i've never heard about this stuff um you know the orioles stuck with their minor league franchise history i mean you know john mcgraw babe ruth they were all part of the baltimore orioles and and many 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 other players uh the cardinals you know bill dewitt who owns it his son bill dewitt the third you know is president of the cardinals they are very strong partners with us the st louis cardinal uh hall of fame has a big section about the browns we have displays um 
throughout the city where we display our archives. We spend a lot of time going into all kinds of organizations, talking, bringing our our portable uh, Browns Museum uh, with us. Uh, so, I mean, we are very active. Uh, and as I said, the things we do, the partnership where, you know, we had the Gateway Grizzly game, 1922 featuring George Sisser. We had 1949. Roy Sievers uh, was the first American League Rookie of the Year in 1949. And we did a year where they dressed as 49 Browns. And by the way, you know, the very first ever MVP in baseball was handed out in 1922. And who did it go to? A Brown, George Sisser. The first Rookie of the Year, as I spoke about, was first awarded in the American League in 1949. And who did it go to? Roy Seavers, a Brown. You know, we did, uh, we had it all set up in 1920 because Don Larson, you know, his fame was one day in October in 1956 for the Yankees, but his love, the Browns, he said, there never been a Browns, there never be a Don Larson. He would come every year to our luncheons and just sit there and sign uh, autographs. Wouldn't charge a cent to anyone because he that's his way of giving back to the Browns. And so we, we did his bobblehead we had it all ready for last year when uh, the virus came, but we did it this year. And we will be announcing uh, our coming uh, bobblehead here next week. Um, and, you know, people flock. So, I mean, we're doing things, and people ask that same question. We're doing things to try to make a difference. And to your other point, when there are no Browns, we're down to four. You know, two years ago we had uh, – it was funny. There was a point where we had nine left, and each one of them played a different position. So we could fill the field the team. We said, you know, get first base with a walker might be hard, but now we're down to four. Um, I think we've had three of the last four oldest living major league ball players were Browns. Uh, we said losing helped you live longer, uh, and you know, it, it's. I, I I've always put it in perspective. People say, well, what are you going to do when? there aren't any left. I said, we'll keep doing what we're doing. We'll keep spreading history. There aren't any civil war soldiers. There aren't any world war one soldiers. And there's not many world war two soldiers, but we still herald them with round tables and luncheons and reunions. And I see no reason why we can't do that for the Browns. And everybody tells me we're with you. Um, you know, we've reinvigorated with the, with the, with the two PBS films, you know, why the, I mean, I, I am really appalled that the people in Brooklyn who love the Dodgers so much don't have a fan club. They still don't recognize and remember. Uh, and, you know, I see no reason why we can't continue. And it's these young people who come to our events who want to learn. Um, and it's we have people, they, you know, we do it in the summer, these luncheons and dinners. So people come from out of town, you know, and they bring their kids. And it's it's just amazing to stand up on that podium and look at 400-plus people there to talk about a team that hasn't played in 60-plus years and think, wow, how special is this? All right, not quite sure we gave uh, the full treatment uh, to this uh, very uh, story-rich and uh, idiosyncratic uh, history of this uh, just curious and fascinating team, the St. Louis Browns. Hopefully we'll have 
Ed or and or some other folks on uh, in future episodes to kind of go uh, deeper into some you know more interesting um, uh, subtexts of uh, of this uh, just fascinating c- certainly to me uh, St. Louis Browns story. But so many things to uh, delve into in the interim. Uh, that I'd like to recommend to you if you don't already know of them. So uh, grab a pen and paper. Here we go. Uh, the website, this is sort of the, uh, it's it's slick, it's uh, deep, it's uh, just a treasure trove and, and a great on-ramp to lots of stuff. TheSTLBrowns.com. The, the letter V, T-H-E, S-T-L Browns, TheSTLBrowns.com. Check that, that out. That's uh, Ed's uh, labor of love. Uh, the society is there, the uh, all the links to uh, great stuff. There's a face group, a face group, Facebook group. There you go. Uh, devoted to uh, the St. Louis Browns. Pretty active, uh, according to Ed. So check that out. You can also send Ed a note directly uh, via email. STLBrowns at SWBell, dot net. Uh, in the interim, though, check out the films. They're both available on the PBS uh, St. Louis station called KETC TV. Uh, their website is 9NINEPBS.org. 9NINEPBS.org. And the two films you want to look for, you can search them up and stream them and watch them live right there, live, you know, accessed uh, on demand. The St. Louis Browns, the team that baseball forgot, narrated by John Hamm, uh, is there for you. And you can also check out the sequel, uh, both Emmy nominated, by the way, A Baseball Legacy. Fans remember the St. Louis Browns, again, both on 9pbs.org. And of course, must get the two books uh, that uh, Ed uh, has written or co-written. The one that's uh, currently out uh, is called Baseball in St. Louis, From Little Leagues to Major Leagues. That's the one he uh, wrote on his uh, his own, um, as well as the uh, other book that he co-wrote with uh, Messrs. uh, Bill Borst and Bill Rogers, called St. Louis Brown's Story of a Beloved Team. Both of those books are available wherever you find good books. Uh, Amazon, of course, probably the quickest place. And if you'd like to uh, give us a couple of shekels of love by uh, purchasing that book, by all means, go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode 247 with Ed Wheatley and uh, find a convenient link, why don't you? Uh, And we'll get a couple of... uh, a referral credits, if you will, uh, for your purchases of said books. We appreciate that, uh, as well as any books you might want to buy through uh, our website. Of course, the website is where you're going to find all of our past and and uh, future episodes. Uh, lots of great stuff there. You can send us email at good uh, at hello. I'm really trying to speed through this. Hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's the email address. You want to follow us on social media? You can do that too. Uh, you'll find us on Facebook. You'll see us uh, on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available, and on Twitter, probably where we're most active at Good Seats Still. Uh, let's see what else we've got. A weekly email newsletter. Just search the website. You'll find a little link to add your name to that. Go go for that. Uh, our thanks, of course, to our pal Jerry Payne. Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. Always uh, a, a pleasure uh, working with you. And thank you again for uh, sticking around with us this week. Uh, kind sir and uh, let's leave you with a little uh, musical tribute shall we uh, this is a very interesting find I, I, you know we always try to find sort of like original uh, fight songs or theme songs that kind of stuff uh, surprisingly we didn't really find one for the Browns although we did find this one from 1972 uh, from uh, an un- uh, surprising source his name is Skip Batten you may remember him 
as one of the original members of the Birds of the late 60s, early 70s. He was also part of uh, a reconstituted Flying Burrito Brothers. Uh, but in 1972, he uh, had an album out, and uh, there was this little ditty on it devoted to, uh, I think, perhaps, maybe some personal memories of the St. Louis Browns. Here it is. Um, it's, enjoy, uh, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. I got the St. Louis Browns. I got the St. Louis Browns. Since the St. Louis Browns left town. Since the St. Louis Browns left town. Ooh, we're the St. Louis Browns. Tell us. What you found The St. Louis Browns Were a baseball team And they lost more Than the Mets could ever dream They had a one-armed man In left field named Pete Gray Who's 44 There's no healthy man around To play baseball Then they's all the way Fighting in a war Bill Vick came along As general manager Along about 47 
who are now in their 30s and 40s. Well, sometimes they look at their falling out hair. They remember when they had the same. 